0: What a joy it is to be back. Uh, it's gone for three Sundays, and it's kind of just like coming home. Uh, family to be here. Just really, uh, really grateful to be worshiping with you this morning. Uh, just really glad to be here. Um, just got to spend a week at the beach, which was a blast uh, with my family. And then uh, my son and I, Jacob, took a, a trip. We, we flew into Wyoming. Uh, landed and then that day got on the trail and we, we hiked uh, for four days, a couple nights and um, it was a blast, about 9,000 feet up, 10,000 feet uh, in the Wind River Range and Tickum Basin area. It was awesome. Um, great for my soul, good time for my family, so I just want to say thank you. Uh, thanks for just time away and uh, resting and refreshing this summer. Thanks so much. Um, and I also want to say, uh, uh, do that. Uh, get some time away. Uh, Rick Warren puts it this way: he says, "Withdraw," uh, or he says, uh, "Divert daily, withdraw weekly, and abandon annually." I love it. Uh, he has a way with words. He says, uh, "Divert daily. Take uh, you know five, ten minutes each day to just step back, to pray, to be in silence, and sit with your Lord. Read the scriptures, pray, talk with him. Divert daily." Withdraw weekly, uh, every week on a Sabbath, kind of just step back away from work and, and with your family if you've got family uh, around and, and just rest and sit with the Lord. And, and then annually, abandon, just kind of uh, cut all ties, turn off the phone and get away. Uh, I, I, I think sometimes we don't do that here in D.C. We think we're too important. Uh, one of our staff members reminded us, uh, you're replaceable. Every one of us is replaceable. Uh, you'll be replaced if you don't rest. So we've got to rest our souls. We've got to rest our souls. Uh, if you've got any time off, if you're able to at work, just take that time off and, and get away. We've been in a series, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We've been looking through the Old Testament and how it points forward to Christ, that you've got kind of all these good, the bad, and the ugly, whether it be Adam or Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all these others, the judges. And and we said, how do these people point us forward to the person of Christ? Uh, We're messy people. We relate with them. Not one of us is all good or all bad. We're just kind of this uh, mess of good, bad, and ugly. Made in the very image of God and majestic in that way, but absolutely, totally depraved and broken. Good, the bad, and the ugly. People in need of a Savior people in need of His eternal rest that only He can give. And we said, kind of through the story, there are four kind of main ways that, that Jesus will point us forward, and the story of the Old Testament will point us forward to who Christ is and what He's done. Redemptive history was the first, that kind of event after event, whether it be the Passover event or even creation itself, kind of steps us forward to this moment, the event in history when Jesus will come to earth. Redemptive history, that the whole story of the Old Testament is a historic event after one after another, taking us to the time of Christ. And then we said there's a foreshadow fulfilled. Uh, Take the Passover, for instance. Uh, God's people are rescued out of Egypt, and and in their rescuing, this lamb is slain in the place of the firstborn son, and and they wipe the the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And then when Jesus shows up, that uh, event that was dim in the Old Testament points forward to this blazing glory of a moment when Jesus hangs on a cross, and he says, I'm your Passover lamb. And he dies for our sin, takes our place, just like that lamb did for the firstborn son back in the Old Testament. Foreshadow, events fulfilled. Then you've got kind of positive and negative types. You've got people in the Old Testament. This is where we've been focusing uh, back here where uh, someone in their glory and their faithfulness and their greatness, uh, King David, a, a mighty benevolent king, will look at him and say, Man, there's a king coming who's even greater, a savior to come. And in his negative aspects, in his sinfulness, in his lust, will say, man, I am so sinful. I need that Savior to come. So types is a person in the Old Testament that will point us forward to Jesus. Then we've got direct prophecy, like in Malachi, where it says, he'll be born in Bethlehem, the Savior to come. And we look forward, and man, he's born in the town of David, Bethlehem, direct prophecies. Well, this morning, I want to do something a little different. We've been looking at a person each week. We said, How does he or she point us forward to Christ? This morning, what I want to do is give us a framework. Uh, I'll use a a bit of a bigger word a covenantal framework of of how do we read the scriptures uh, and, particularly, the covenants and how do they build a, a framework for us to read this relationship between God and us, humanity. Because the covenants kind of set this framework for us to read the whole story from Adam to Noah to Adam uh, uh, from, uh, to Abraham to Moses to the new covenant and David and on. Uh, how do we read the scriptures with a covenantal framework and how does that help it make sense for us and, and why the heck does it matter for our life? So what we're going to do we're going to hit three main covenants. There's, there's more than these three, and, and there's kind of some minor ones, and then there's kind of some overarching ways to think about the covenants. But here's what we're going to do we're going to hit three. We're going to hit the Abrahamic covenant, then we're going to hit the Davidic covenant, and then we're going to hit the New Covenant. This is going to give us a framework to understand the scriptures, and also it deeply impacts our lives. Uh, Because in it, we're going to say, gosh, we got a place eternal that our God has promised us. We have a person in his majesty who's embraced us by his grace, and we are a people eternally. Why? Because God has promised it, and he is faithful. So let's get into it together. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, please do snag one of the Bibles we left on your pews. We're going to be all over the scriptures this morning, going to read a lot of scripture together. And, and before we jump in, I just want to define covenant for us in our super simple way. Covenant is a relational promise. A covenant is a relational promise, it's, it's contractual in one sense, uh, where the, both. Uh, Pieces of the relationship have a part to carry out. But, but in, in this case, when we think of God relating with humanity, uh, this is a relational promise that God makes to men and women. He brings us into relationship with himself. He sustains us in relationship. And then he culminates the relationship at his return. This is a relational promise that God makes with his people. Our God is a relational God. Christianity is a, uh, is a relational religion. Between God and man. All right, so let's get into it. Genesis chapter 13. The Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 13. I'm sorry, 12. <laughs> I've been on vacation. <laughs> Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, this is Abram and Sarai, uh, uh, this is kind of the inauguration of God's people. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Uh, notice God is speaking to Abram. Uh, he is in the land of Haran in Ur and he's kind of uh, northeast of the promised land where God says I'm going to take you. Uh, and you know God has already talked to Adam back in creation. In a sense made a covenant with him. He said to Adam and Eve I'm going to give you this land, this Garden to live in, would you be obedient to me? You can eat from any tree in it, enjoy it all. But don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the deal. That's the relationship. That's the covenant. And then Adam says, I'll do as I please. And he breaks it, and the land is broken. Where, where once there was peace and flourishing uh, between God and humanity, uh, now there is toil and injustice and, and, and tears and death. And then Noah shows up, and and man, things have gotten even worse. God, in a sense, has restarted things. Uh, Everything's become so wicked, and Noah steps out of the boat with his family, and God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm never going to destroy the world in this kind of way again. And he puts this rainbow in the sky. He says, I won't crush my people like this anymore. And now he takes Abraham and Sarah. And he says, things are going for you really well in this land. I mean, you're kind of flourishing over there in Haran, and things are going great. But, but I'm going to take you. I will. Notice the language through the covenant over and over again. I will. I will. I will. I will. God speaks. God promises. I will, what I'll take you from this land where it's it's pretty good, right? There's some brokenness there, but I'm going to take you to this place. It's going to be amazing. You're going to be a nation, a seed, right? You're going to have this land, this place, and you're going to flourish. You're going to have all these descendants there. And then I'm going to bless you. I'm going to pour blessing and grace on you. And people who bless you, I'm going to bless them too. People who curse you, I'm going to curse them too. I am with you, God is saying. In this place, it's going to be awesome. It won't be broke. It's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey, shalom, peace, holistic, flourishing. A place where everything is as it ought to be. Eternally, he says. Genesis chapter 15 is going to to reiterate this promise again to Abraham and Sarah. Abraham's there in Genesis chapter 15, and then in Genesis chapter 17, he's going to give a mark for this promise, a sign and a seal, this circumcision mark. But this really cool thing happens in Genesis chapter 15. Uh, see, uh, in ancient Near East time, what will happen and when you make a relational promise like this, a covenant where you do your thing, I do my thing, this is how the relationship will work. You cut the covenant. And what happens is you take an animal typically and you, you rend it in half, you cut it in half, and, and it's bloody, it's gory, and, and one part of the animal is here and one part of the animal is there. And then you, whoever made the covenant, the promise together, and the other uh, party uh, hold hands and walk through this animal as if to say, if you break your part or if I break my part, you're as good as dead. I promise I will keep this covenant. Now, it's really funny, in in Genesis chapter 15, what happens is Abraham is there and God is there, and and Abraham probably knows this ritual, and it's about to take place. These uh, animals are cut and bloodied on this side and that side, and God puts Abraham to sleep, and God walks through the middle of this cut animal as if to say, if you break this thing, I'll pay the price. I'll take you to the place that I promised I'd give you where everything is as it should be. I'll bring you home. Uh, This is all over the New Testament. I'm going to skim some of these verses. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 to 10, Abraham is uh, being uh, commended for his faith. And and he has this faith that's being commended. Why? Because he looked forward to a place, a city, a city. That wasn't built by human hands, but was made by God himself, whose foundations was made by God himself, a place where everything would be as it should be, where God himself built that city. Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. Abraham is mentioned again there, this promise that that God had made where, where God would bless Abraham, and through Abraham he would bless all people. And Paul in Galatians chapter 3 says, It's as though the sons and daughters of faith are Abraham's sons, family, heirs of the inheritance, that promise that God had given back there in Genesis chapter 12. It was a promise that God would bless all people and bring them to that place where everything is as it should be if by faith they trusted in Christ. John chapter 14, verses 1 to 4. Jesus is sitting with the twelve And he's talking to him, and he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, a place where there's not going to be tears, there's not going to be sorrow, there's not going to be death, it's going to be amazing, and I'm going to prepare it for you. And we see inklings of this promise that was made to Abraham back here in the Old Testament. This place where everything would be as it should be. This place that God was building. This all of eternity place where there's no tear, there's no death, there's no sin, there's no injustice. It's all wiped away. Where kids don't wrestle with special needs. Where homelessness doesn't exist. Where orphans aren't found. Not because they're done away with, but because it's all made right, all mended, all made new. Home. I cannot wait. I can't wait. Revelation chapter 21 says it this way. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. He saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, what? The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people home. Even when you've been on an awesome vacation, like the Outer Banks, I mean, it was, it was awesome. I couldn't wait to get home. You show up, there's a welcome mat, and you step into your home. It's nothing like home, particularly when everything at home is going great and going well and, and, and nothing in the house is broken, including relationships. When it's flourishing in your home, you're like, man, I cannot wait to get home. You're on a business trip, and you're thinking, I can't wait to get home. You're away at college, and you, can't, and you think, I cannot wait to get home. Where everything's just as it ought to be. It's why uh, when we were hiking in Wyoming, I, you know, I, I didn't have a phone for nearly a week. I mean, you're out 20 miles into the back country, and it's like, signal? There ain't no signal. And so when I called that night... When we got off the trail, I'm like, Court, how's things going? She's like, actually, it's going great. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. She goes, except for one really big problem. I'm like, (laughs) what's the big problem? She goes, well, we have a leak in the ceiling of the bathroom. Actually, it's more than a leak. Uh, There's water pouring through our bathroom ceiling. And I say, (laughs) well, that does sound like a problem. (laughs) It sounds like things are not right at home. Things are broken at home. What you need to do, you need to take a hammer and you need to start pounding into the ceiling to see where it's coming from. So this is the ceiling of our bathroom. You can see all the pipes up above. You can see the floorboards up above because Courtney got up in the ceiling with a hammer and starts pounding and water starts pouring down. The ceiling was destroyed. The house was out of order. It was ugly. Thank God for shark bites. If you know what a shark bite is, you can see it right there. When I got home, she had turned off the water. I cut through that copper pipe, put on a shark bite, good as new. But the house was out of order. Where do you feel this in your home? Where are things out of order in your home? Where do you see the drips in the ceiling and then the whole drywall is just coming down? Is there a relationship that needs forgiveness? Is there something broken in your home? Where do you see it in your neighborhood or your county or in our country? Man, when we, when we lift our eyes even from our home, we, we see the brokenness everywhere. Where do you need to step in by His grace to bring a little foretaste of home to hear as we wait for His return? One day we will be home. One day we will be home. I promise. I promise we'll be home. His words are true. He promises it to Abraham in an eternal kind of way. He says, You now are sons and daughters by faith in Christ to get that inheritance of home that's coming when the, the new Jerusalem comes out of the skies and our King Jesus returns. And he says, I'm here to dwell with you here. There's not going to be any death. There's not going to be any tears. There's not going to be any of this stuff that brings groaning in your life today. I'm bringing it. It's going to be perfect. I cannot wait. Man, I can't wait. But what's broken today? Because we aren't just supposed to sit by and wait passively for Jesus to bring our new home and all of eternity where everything's going to be mended. We're to be what what I like to say is like a movie trailer. In our families, in our neighborhoods, in our county, in our country. A little foretaste of the great cinema to come. You know what happens in a movie trailer, right? Right? You go, you sit down before the movie you paid to watch, way too much to pay to watch. And you sit there and you're watching and you get movie trailer after movie trailer after movie trailer. What do you get? You get a little snippet, a little foretaste of what that movie's going to be. Right? And here's what happens. You watch it, you watch it. Then what's the first thing everyone does right after the trailer? Not going to see it. Or, man, I'm going to see that one. As we wait for our home, we should have these little microcosms, these little foretastes of what it's going to be like. You think there will be homelessness there? You think there will be orphans there? You think there's going to be injustice there? None of that's going to be there. Not because God eradicates it, but because he redeems it by his grace. And this is what we ought to be in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our county, in our country. little foretaste of the glory that will be when we get home. When Jesus brings a new creation here to this earth where sin has marred and broken. Everything from that original agreement with Adam when it was all broken. to That promise he makes to Abraham. To then Jesus who comes and says, I'm going to bring this place to you. And then when he comes back and brings it for sure. What a foretaste we could live out and enjoy now as we wait. As we wait for the welcome that of Jesus' return. We wait for our eternal place, a place where we will dwell together with our King as his people, but But Jesus God himself, He, he doesn't promise. He doesn't promise just a place where it's all going to be amazing, everything will be as it is supposed to be, perfect, but He promises us a person. You know, here's the context of this passage, Uh, King David. What, What has occurred here is Abraham has been given this promise, and we have Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and God's people are growing, there's these 12 tribes, and and they grow in, in just massive number and then they're enslaved in Egypt and, and God rescues them out of Egypt as he's taken them to this place that he's promised he'll give them. And he gives them the Mosaic Covenant in that time period with Moses uh, and all these kind of ways to live as God's people in obedience to him who will provide an eternal place of rest for them forever. And then in that Mosaic covenant, he's saying, if you obey this, you'll be blessed. If you disobey this, you will bring death. And in the midst of all this, what they're realizing is they can't do it. And we, if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time and you've tried at all to obey him... (laughs) What you realize often over and over again is, gosh, I just, I just keep falling short of who I want to be, what I want to think, what I want to do, how I want to act, what I don't want to do, what I want to think, what I don't want to think. what I... And this is what they've been experiencing, right? They're, 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 they're following God, and they're in the wilderness. They keep grumbling and complaining and not being the kind of people they want to be. And then, then they're like, oh, man, what we need is judges, and these judges kind of come in. And, and then they're like, what we really need is a king. He would help us. Then we could be the kind of people that God wants us to be. So so they get Saul, and man, that's a disaster. And then David comes along. And David, he's he's kind of uh, known as uh, a man after God's own heart. But even he falls way short. And here's a promise that God makes to David. As David, you know, he's kind of wanting to build this temple for the Lord, a place to dwell even here on earth as he waits for Jesus' God's return. And, And this is the promise that... God makes to him in Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. A promise that talks about a person. Chapter 7, verse 12. When your days, David, are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. And then it goes on and it talks about even uh, some discipline because what's happening in this covenantal promise is, is that uh, David is going to have a, a son and, and uh, his son will build this temple, Solomon. And, and this son's not going to be all perfect, but, but this promise, this eternal one to come through the line of David points forward to the Son of God who will come. God will be like a father to this son and he will reign forever. There's a king to come. God promises to David. He's a person who will conquer, who will command, who will protect and provide, who's mighty and is merciful. And notice again the language of this covenant. I will, I will, I will, God says over and over again, promises, sure and stable. He says, uh, from your offspring and from your body, he reiterates, David, uh, this king, who the eternal king, will come through your seed. When he's born, he'll be born in your town, Bethlehem. <laughs> he's a king of kings, the lord of lords, the eternal ruler. The connections are almost too obvious in the New Testament, aren't they? In Matthew, the very first verse of the New Testament, here's what we read. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who the son of David, the son of Abraham. The covenant keeper, the, the king we're all waiting for, the person we have been waiting for has arrived on the scene. Particularly to Jewish ears, the trumpets are blaring. The king is here, the one we've all been waiting for. The one, the person who was promised back here to our father David has now arrived. Oh, We see him in the last week of his life, Jesus, after he's lived his life blamelessly. As he's shown his might in mighty ways and shown his mercy uh, beyond all expectation. They didn't expect a king like this who'd be so merciful and gracious. They thought he was just going to be this iron-fisted, crush the Romans, uh, give us a, a new conquered land. That's what they were waiting for. But Jesus, he lives with might and mercy, grace and truth. He welcomes in the outsider. He brings in the outcast. And he's heading into Jerusalem. That last week of his life, it's Palm Sunday, uh, Matthew chapter 26. And what's he doing? He's, he's riding on the donkey, uh, a sign of peace as a king coming in. Hosanna, Hosanna, God saves, God says. They're declaring him king with palm branches. And then in chapter 27, verse 37, we see Jesus, our king. Hung on a cross and above him is written, the King of the Jews. Died for their sins, for our sins, for the sins of the world and all who believe in him. maybe it was at that moment when his disciples started to realize something bigger, something grander is going on. He's not coming just to rescue us in this circumstantial situation. He is coming to do an eternal work to mend the brokenness between us and our true king, our God and our father, where our sin, our rebellion has separated us from him and his fist comes down on us in wrath. Yet it's come down on his son as he walks through the split animal pieces, bloodied. Paying for our disobedience. Fulfilling the promise in our place. Righteous in his life, living perfectly like we never did. And saying, here, have my obedience as your very own as he hangs as our king on that cross. Philippians 2 talks all about this kind of king. A king in all of his glory, Jesus the Son. Who doesn't take that equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he makes himself nothing, becoming the very nature of a servant and becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. And he's humbled to this point of death as a sacrifice in our place. And God, his Father, looks at him and says, You are the King, Lord of lords. Every knee will bow in heaven on earth to you, the King. Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 and following Talk about our king. Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 and following. John is talking to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you, peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, the eternal one from the seven spirits who were before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, the king of kings. To him who loves us, who's freed us from our sins by his blood, made us a kingdom of priests to his God our Father. To him be glory and dominion now and forever. And the whole book of Revelation just captures. He's not coming back on a donkey, but he's coming back on a war horse. He's coming back to make all things right. The one from his throne, the Lamb who is worthy of our praise, slain in our place. Our King, the mighty and the merciful. He's the one who changes our want-to's. That's how Court and I define sin for our kids. You have the wrong kind of want to. You have the wrong kind of want to. You don't want to do what's right. (laughs) I know because I'm just like you. But here we have this king whose commands can be trusted, they lead to life. But he doesn't just command us as his servants. He compels us by who he is and what he's done. He changes our want to's. We look at him on the cross and we say, you did that for me. Your death in my place, you, your obedience in my place of disobedience, you did that for me. I love you. I can trust you. I want to live for you. It's like that moment when I saw Courtney walking down the aisle and I thought, I want to give my whole life for her. He changes our want-to's. He compels us by his grace. His grace. One day we will meet our king. We'll meet our king. I promise you. I promise you he will return. Today this matters. Is is there something where you need to repent? Where you need to turn from how you're living, where you are living a self-directed life uh, in whole, right? Where you're saying, I I have really decided how I'm going to live, what I'm going to live for. And you need to first say, I need to bend the knee now to my king. Maybe that's you this morning. You don't have to have it all sorted out, but here's what you know you're not doing a great job being king in your life, and it's, it, is, it is bringing anxiety and anger and turmoil. And these are all signs that there is one true king who you need to kneel before a Savior who is trustworthy and true and loving and gracious, who compels our new obedience and allegiance to Him. Now, maybe you're a follower of Jesus this morning. And you know there's some areas of your life where you're not bending a knee. you're not bending a knee. You've decided you can trust yourself in this relationship, though you know it's not honoring to him. You decide you can trust yourself with your money, though you know it's not honoring to him. Let's not live self-directed, self-governed lives. And then I also want us to think about not just areas of repentance, but areas of enjoyment of our King. Where today do you need to say, oh, that's my king, and I know one day he's coming back, but he's here now. Right? All of these promises are these kind of already not yet promises, right? We have this king, we have this father, we have this savior right now to enjoy a relationship with. We've not seen him yet, but we love him. What's it look like for you to enjoy this relationship with your king today? You need to step back and, and and maybe it's this divert daily and withdraw weekly and abandon annually where you you just sit at his feet you soak in the scriptures you listen maybe you just read the gospel of matthew and you say that's the king i've grown to love or that's a king i don't know yet and i want to get to know him and and then you go on to mark and and luke and john you just read through the gospel and you say i want to get to know this guy and ask him you might know him more deeply and love him and enjoy him. How do you need to enjoy him? Maybe it's a, this allegiance of service to him. Where you say, I'm not, I'm not doing anything for my king. I'm not responding at all with obedience. And, and I need to give my life away in service to the church in this way, or in service to my community for Christ this way, or in service in my job to Jesus in this way. And serve him wholeheartedly. Our God has promised an eternal place, he has promised an eternal person, a king, a mighty savior who's merciful. And our God has promised that we would be his people. Our God has promised we would be his people. All kinds of people brought together in his promises. Our time goes on here after the kings and the prophets are speaking to the kings over and over again. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all these others. And, and in the beginning of Jeremiah, uh, you, you get uh, the picture of who Jeremiah is speaking with. This is kind of after uh, God's people, his kingdom has been divided into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And, and Jeremiah is here uh, speaking as a mouthpiece of God to Josiah and Jehoiakim and, and, and Zedekiah. And he's speaking to these kings and he's basically saying... You need to get your life in order and allegiance to the king. But it is a just flat-out mess at this point as God's people. As the kings and the prophets are taking place and the prophets are speaking to the kings. But then there's this promise of a new covenant. A people that God is making. As he takes them under the allegiance of this person he will send and brings them to the place where it will flourish forever. And this is what God says in Jeremiah chapter 31. It's echoed in Joel chapter 2 and Ezekiel 37 and other places. Jeremiah 31 verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the hand to bring them to the land, out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here it is. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer will each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, their sin, their disobedience, their rebellion. I will remember their sin no more. I hardly need to say it. Do you see it over and over? I will. I will. I will. God promises. He's faithful. He's true. He's sure. He's trustworthy. He promises. What will he do? He'll write his law on their hearts. He'll get inside these cold stone hearts and he'll bring them to flesh. He'll he'll send his spirit is what Ezekiel 37 highlights. And what we see in Acts chapter 2 he says I'm going to get inside of there. What you couldn't take care of in the inside of who you are, that's where I'm going. Why? So that you will know me. All that you've ever longed for in relationship with the living God, I'll bring it to you. It's not just this individual thing I'm going to do in just your little heart and your own little closet. I'm going to make you a people from the least to the greatest, all the nations of the earth from this corner to that corner. I'm going to bring them all together in the spirit as they testify who the son is and what he's done by grace. I'm going to make you a people in relationship where you belong as my family under my father. It's all over the New Testament, isn't it? A divine family, a diverse family, with whom we belong. People. Acts chapter 2 is probably just the best place to start. I'm not going to go to all these verses for the sake of time, but uh, Peter is standing before this great multitude, and there's this uh, little uh, section in, in verse 5 of chapter 2. He says, all nations are there. Everybody's there, all these different languages, and the Spirit is poured out. And these exact words from Joel chapter 2 and Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 37, they're all hitting, and it's like, it's happening. And they're, they're like, wow. They're so excited. Everyone there is like, they're drunk. It's so crazy. They're like, this is the moment we've all been waiting for. God is bringing about his new covenant through the person of the Son who has lived a perfect life, died on the cross and risen to bring newness of life, and now he's sending his spirit to dwell in us to, in us to make us his people. It's happening! And they're jubilant. Acts chapter 2. Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 29. Jesus, right before all this occurs, he's about to die and he institutes the family meal. And he, he uses the language uh, from Exodus uh, chapter 24, of where, where Moses is sprinkling this blood on the altar and he's saying, This is the blood of the covenant. And, and Jesus says, This is the blood of the covenant. In Luke, he's going to say, This is the blood of my blood of the new covenant. Like, this is the moment I'm making the, the people of God in the person of Christ. And he institutes this family meal to remember it his life, his death, his resurrection, to say, this is a a, a sign and a seal of who you are as God's people by his grace. And then he's about to leave, he's 12 and now 11 who were following him, and he says, I'm going to give you a mark too. He says, "Uh, you go, and anyone who wants to follow me, Jesus, here's what you do, you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What's he saying? He's saying, give them the family name. (laughs) Give them the family name. Identify them with me, Jesus, in my death and my resurrection. They're part of the family from the least to the greatest, white and black and this and that and high income and low income and Republican and Democrat. Even you two can come together. And then we read in Revelation chapter 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away the sea was no more he sees a new Jerusalem coming down out of the heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the dwelling place of God is with man he will dwell with them and the same same words from Jeremiah chapter 31 they will be his people he'll be their God they'll be his people I love it in Jeremiah chapter 31, because they must have been doubting, right? Like, oh, man, how can we trust this guy who's going to keep these promises? And, and he goes into this little thing. I won't read all of it, but in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 35, he says, you can trust me, thus says the Lord. And he goes on, he says, man, I, I, I put the sun for light by day, right? He's like, he's like see that sun? I, I, I put it there. And I fixed the order of the moon at night and, and the stars at night, too. He says, I put all that in the sky. That, that's who I am, God. You can trust me. And, and I won't forget it. Uh, I'm, I'm on the hike, and uh, before the hike, you, you don't pack. You pack by the ounce. So I didn't bring my whole Bible, and uh, I just wrote out Jeremiah chapter 31 and uh, verses 31 to 42, and, and I wrote it out there. It's and I was just reading it as I'm walking, and then in my tent at night, and in, in the tent, you keep, you keep the rain fly off on some nights, it's freezing cold, but you look up and you see all the stars. And I was reminded. God says, When, when you're looking out, when you look, that was our campsite. I know, it's ridiculous. When you're looking out, and you see the stars, to the small D.C., and you see the sun when it's blazing in the day and the moon when it's hanging there at night. You remember my promises are true, he said. It was such a beautiful moment. I'm hiking with these guys, all different shapes and sizes and colors and, 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 and economic uh, abilities. And, it, and we're all just hiking on the trail under the stars, and, and we all knew Jesus. And there were some rough moments, like uh, some of the guys were not carrying their weight, <laughs> And then there were some beautiful moments, and it was just this mess of a family sitting on the stars of God's promises and His goodness and His grace, Be reminded, ah, oh, we're in this together, His people. It's a bit of a picture of who we are as God's people, knowing one day we'll belong. That we belong now in Christ is an already kind of thing, but not yet fully one day, from the least to the greatest, all the tensions we experience here, they're all going to be done away with. Redemption will come. Restoration will come. Reconciliation will come. Will will be his family, his messy, diverse family all together. Let's bring a foretaste today. There's a stark difference between a covenant and a contract. A contract, a contract says to us, the good, the bad, the ugly, you and me, a contract says this. I'll hire you for a job. It's like an employee you give a contract to, right? Uh, you do this, and you can stay on the workforce with me here, right? Uh, you have what you need to do. I have what I need to do. I'm the boss. You're, you're the servant. You, you do as I say, and that's the contract, right? And when you're reading through the covenants, uh, there's a lot of that kind of language, actually. It looks very contingent. You do this. You keep your end of the bargain, and then all will be well. But what we see through the whole relational agreement between us and our God is we keep falling short. We keep breaking the contract. We we keep being disobedient in the way that we live, what we do, don't do, how we think, our affections, everything. But the difference between a covenant that God makes with his people is he says, I'll keep your end of the bargain too. And he sends his son, the person we've all been waiting for, to make us the kind of people we want to be and take us to the place we are waiting for and his son comes and is perfectly obedient from start to finish and then he says all pay for their disobedience and our king hangs on a tree in our place the covenant is cut his blood is spilled And he pays for our disobedience. And in that moment, it's a full culmination of his obedience all the way to the cross. He says, I'll follow you, Father, even to the cross. And the son hangs there. And then he says, they can have my obedience too. And by faith, the inheritance is ours. Just by trusting in Christ. All the promises from Abraham to David. To the new covenant, they're all ours in Christ by His grace. So if you're not trusting in Christ this morning, don't partake in the family meal yet. Receive the Son. Receive Him. Trust in Him, pray, talk to Him. And if you're a son or a daughter of the King, come and enjoy Enjoy what he's done for you by grace. Enjoy who he's made you by grace. Enjoy that you know where you're spent eternity by grace. Let's take and eat and enjoy the promises of our God culminated, fulfilled in Christ.